Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture, that we might find out what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe. The Bible says that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, profitable for reproof, correction, that the man of God, the woman of God as well, could be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing for every good work, that we would be able to walk in those good works that God has given us. The question that we have today is one that I was asked a while ago, like a long time ago, and then recently was left as a comment on our YouTube channel. And that is that Jesus, if he is the son of God, how can he be God? Years ago, I was talking to someone who said to me, Jesus can't be the son, they can't be God because he's the son of God. And surprisingly, that came from a Christian who had been a Christian a long time, but never really thought through the idea of the Trinity and whether or not the Bible teaches that the Son of God is God. So that's where I want to start. I want to start by taking you, first of all, to Hebrews chapter 1. And we see here that God clearly calls the Son of God, God. And there are other places that show, Psalms chapter 2, other places that talk about the Son of God. Um, The Bible, some point out, doesn't use the word Trinity. That's the most basic argument that there is, by the way, because we don't have to have the word Trinity for the Bible to teach us the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all three gods, all all three God, one God, one God that that is one in essence, three in persons. Uh, The qualities of God are attributed to the Holy Spirit, to the Son, and to the Father. But let's go ahead and go to this passage where the Son of God is called God by God the Father. All right, so this is Hebrews chapter one, verse five, and it starts off with a quote from Psalms two, which you wanna go to when you're looking at the Son of God and and what the Bible says about it. It says in Psalms two, to kiss the Son lest he be angry at you. It says in verse five, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. There became a point when God became man. He had to become man to become our kinsman redeemer, to redeem us that that we could be saved. He goes on to say, and again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says that firstborn there isn't the first one ever born, but it's the one who has the right of the firstborn. The firstborn child had the right of the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn and that's in the context of all of the Bible, when he uses the term firstborn, it means the firstborn. It says the firstborn in the world, he says, when he brings the firstborn in the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So now we have the son of God coming into the world and the angels worshiping him. There's no other place where we find anything acceptable to be worshiped except for God. You shall worship him alone and him only shall you serve, it says in the 10 commandments. And here God says, when I bring the firstborn into the world, let all the angels of God worship him. Now it gets even more direct. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God called the Son God. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now that ought to make it really clear here that the son of God is God. And when you see these arguments, and as I said, we've had a couple of them on our YouTube channel lately that they say he can't be the son of God and God at the same time. They just don't know scripture. It's like Jesus said to the Pharisees, you you err because you don't know the power of God or the scriptures. You don't know that God can be God and the son of God. Another passage that we would go to to show you this concept that the son of God is indeed God would be Isaiah 9, 6. Let me go ahead and go there. I'll bring that one up on the screen for you as well. Isaiah 9, 6. This is that great Christmas passage. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So there's a child that's going to be born, and he's going to be born for all of us. The angel said to the shepherds in, in Bethlehem, on the out, out in the fields watching their sheep in Bethlehem, there is born to you this day a child who is Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and the, the Savior. It's called him the Savior. So, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. A son was given for me, a son was given for you. The government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, and Jesus is, Counselor. He's the one to give us the proper counseling. Mighty God, Everlasting Father. So here, the child who was born would be called Mighty God and Everlasting Father, which this is the Old Testament, speaking of the concept of the Trinity. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Uh, it's believed that the word counselor there could be a reference to the counseling of the Holy Spirit, where you get wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, all three in one. Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David um, over his kingdom in order to establish it with just judgment and justice uh, from this time forever. Amen. The Lord the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So that's just a couple of verses that we can go to to show that the Son of God is God and that it, it's, again, this concept of the Trinity. And when you hear this argument, it's a really base argument where someone will say, and, and there's a lot who will do it. The cults will argue this. Um, those in Islam will argue the same thing. They'll say he can't be God because he's not the Son of God. But in reality, when we go to see what the Bible says, it teaches it. Now, we have, we have a full-length teaching on the divinity of Jesus, and then we have a smaller hot topic that has 15 passages that talk about Jesus being God, and it's entitled, Is Jesus God? It's an older video a couple years ago when we first started making shorter videos, um, but the content is great. The quality of the audio, eh, a little to be, to be lacking, but the content is great. You can look those up. Maybe Keith can look up those, the divinity of Christ, the longer form teaching, and is Jesus God, I think, is the hot topic. Maybe you can throw them into uh, the comment uh, section here so you guys can look at those if you're interested on more passages that talk about Jesus being God. To me, I'll say this. It has become the easiest position for me to, to defend. There's so much in the Bible about Jesus being God that it's just so easy to, to defend it biblically. All right. So um, Andre has a question. Andre's first again today. Andre, good to see you. Andre says, um, who is, let me do this. I'm going to go this round. I'm going to bring your question back on again. All right. Uh, so Andre says, who is more blessed, a Christian who died shortly after the resurrection of Christ or a believer who lives to see the rapture? 
The former got to spend all the time in the presence of the Lord. Yeah, um, I don't know who I would, I don't know. You know, if I'm just playing off the top of my head and I got to answer any question that's thrown at me, um, I eternity is an interesting thing, right? So in eternity, there's no time. So if we're in eternity and we've, we were a part of the, the resurrection, being alive at the resurrection, being changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye, it seems to me that that would be pretty blessed and we live in eternity. So um, I that would be my answer. If I'm, like I said, if we're playing, answer this question and you got to answer any question. Uh, normally I would say, I, I, I don't, I don't know on these kind of questions, but if I'm saying that I would say um, I would rather be alive today, be a part of the rapture, and then be in the presence of God for all of eternity. And I don't think I would miss out on anything compared to the Christian who died shortly after the resurrection and who had been with Christ all along. Maybe I'm I'm nuts with that. And maybe if you asked me that, Andre, tomorrow, I would give you a different answer. Um, or give me three weeks to forget the question that you asked it and then ask it and see if I give the same question. All right, fact check these hands says, and I appreciate your question, Andre. Fact check these hands says, um, I recently heard a pastor say that one does not die until one makes a decision to accept Jesus Christ. Speaking of those mentally capable to make this decision, he was, all right, so I see the rest of it's not here. Um, YouTube gives you only a certain amount of letters. So this is part one. I recently heard a pastor say, one does not die until one makes a decision to accept or reject Christ. Okay, so I think I'm here, I understand what you're saying. So he's saying, that every person, let's let's um, let's do this. Let's do this a little different way. Let me just uh, reword it a little bit for what I think you're asking. Every person who responds, every person will have a will not die until they respond to the light that they've been given in a positive or a negative way. So is that what this pastor was saying? You can correct me if I'm wrong about that, but we'll get back to it again um, when the second part of the question comes in. So we have a question from Abishag. Abishag, uh, sorry to butcher your name. Uh, Goss, uh, Genesis 124. How do you discuss this biblically with someone who says, this is proof of evolution simply because of the verbiage and let the earth bring forth? Oh, okay. Well, let's go to Genesis 1. Um, since someone is going to use the Bible to make an argument, then you want to be able to go to the Bible to see whether or not this argument is really true. All right. So Genesis chapter one, uh, we're, we, we'll go to verse 24, but let's start in verse one and let's just see what it says. All right. So I'll go ahead and bring this over here. We'll come back to your question in a minute. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was. And God saw the light, and the light was good. And God divided the light from the darkness, and called the day light, and the darkness he called night. So there was evening and morning, and there was a first day. So God created the light and brought separation. This doesn't say it happened naturally by natural causes. It goes on to say, then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it be divide the waters from the waters. Then God made a firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven 
and evening and morning in the second day. So God's still creating. Now there is a firmament and there's heaven. Then God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place and let the uh, dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth and he gathered it together the water. So he called the seas and God saw that it was good. So God's active in all of this. He's not just letting any process take place, right? He's actually doing it. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herbs that yield seeds and the fruit of the tree. So there's your statement. Let the earth bring forth grass and herbs that yield seeds and the fruit tree, the yield fruit according to its kind and the seed is in it on the earth. And it was so, and the earth brought forth grass and herbs and yields according to its kind. Now notice it says according to its kind. So he's trying to argue evolution because God commanded the earth to bring forth trees and fruits and those things. So it's out of the earth that these plants come. That's what the point that's being made, but they come after its kind. After its kind means kind, it can't, it's not changing. So I can argue that there, that there may be adaptation, but there's not going to be evolution from Genesis chapter one and the trees that yield its fruits. It goes on to say whose seed is on itself according to its kind. So now we see that the seeds according to its kind again, you're not, it's not going to change into some, something else, but it's going to yield fruit according to its kind. So there was evening and morning and the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let it them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And so now the stars in the sky and the moon, the planets are up there to give direction for signs and seasons and days and years. So God brought this whole universe into, this, into, into aspect. It's not just creating the earth, but brought everything into play. And it was so. Then God made the great lights and the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. So we know sun and moon and he made the stars also. God sent them in the firmament. Now, if God created the stars and the lights after he created the earth and had the earth bring forth plants, how is that a evolutionary process? It doesn't fit. I've, I've seen people try to fit evolution into these days, but it doesn't fit because the, the, the plants were brought before the light was to rule the day and night. It's, it goes on to say, um, let's go on to verse 19. And God saw that this was all good. So there was evening and morning and the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters abound in abundance with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So nothing about evolution here, nothing about the, the, the earth bringing forth anything. So God created great sea creatures. So God created, how was that evolution? That would be the earth brought forth. This is clearly God creating. So God created and every living thing that moves, which was on the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the, the waters of the sea. Obviously God created them. Now the process is them filling the earth. And then it goes, there was evening and morning and the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures uh, to its kind. And so now we get our phrase again. Let the earth bring forth living creatures. So if you're going to argue evolution and you're going to say the earth brings forth living creatures here, then what about God creating the sea creatures, right? So we go back here. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the water abounded. And so here on the earth, the earth is going to bring forth. Now, what could he mean by the earth bringing it forth? Everything man is made of dust 
and every animal that is alive is made of dust. From ashes to ashes we go, from dust to dust. And so what the earth brought them forth, meaning that these animals were gonna procreate and eat the things of the earth and grow and strong and they were gonna rely on the earth. It's not saying evolution at all, but that animals were gonna rely upon the earth. Then let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind and creepy things and beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so, and God made the beast of the earth. Okay, there it is. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, which would be against evolution and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, God made them. But then they are sustained upon the earth. It goes on to say, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So there's no evolution here. It's God making man in the image of God. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over the cattle and all of the earth and everything that creeps on the earth, which is the dominion God wanted Adam and Eve, and mankind to rule with him. Then it says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, God, he created them. All right, so I know we read over a large passage, but it's clear, there's no way that you could argue um, that, um, let's see, all right, um, well, I went back to the wrong place, yeah. There's no way that you can argue that Genesis 1.24 is talking about, cre uh, talking about evolution because the whole context itself, and this is the problem when you take one little portion out of a, a passage, you can make it say whatever you want to say. You, and that's why context is king, right? Context is everything. If you're having confusion about a text, go back and read it in context. And when I am, when someone wants to debate and make a statement what I'll often do is go back to the context and see, does this context support what they're saying? It's obvious, this is the creation story. This isn't the evolution story. And so one little phrase that's in Hebrew translated over into English is used to make it sound like the earth is bringing forth all of these things, so therefore it must be evolution when it says clearly in the text, it's about creation, about God creating things. So thank you, not only do we learn that Genesis 1 doesn't support evolution, but we also learn how when someone brings up a passage that they think is a, is a gotcha, a, a aha, gotcha moment, uh, how you can deal with it, first of all, by going back and reading the context. All right, so good to see you guys. Good to have you here with us. If you're watching uh, here and joining us for the very first time, really glad to have you here. You can ask any questions about the Bible, um, prophecy, uh, anything that that comes to mind. This is a um, this is a part of our ministry at Calvary Tucson. And if you are at our last study and you had questions about it, the last study that we had was the the scroll in the right hand of God in Revelation chapter five, the the title deed to the earth, a judgment scroll, and the redemption scroll. And if you have questions about that, you can ask them or questions about anything else, any videos we put out or anything that's there. Um, this is a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary Tucson. All right. So um, thank you, Donald Duck friend. I appreciate that and I appreciate you. All right. So we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, was Shem still alive when Abraham was alive? Did they know each other? Also heard it is possible Melchizedek was Shem. What are your thoughts on this? Thanks. Um, yeah, Jari, I've heard that as well, that it's possible that Melchizedek was Shem. Um, I hesitate to think that because it says of Melchizedek, he had no 
generations, no father, no mother, no genealogies, no father, no mother. Um, what it says about him in, in Hebrews makes me think that it's not Seth. I think it's possible if there are no gaps in the genealogy in the Bible and you've got a, a continued genealogy, it's possible that Seth could have been alive when Abraham was alive. And, and you can map this out. Or you could go look at a genealogy of the Bible, find one online, and it'll show you where Abraham's life intersects and, over, and, and where Shem's life intercedes over it. Um, what we don't know is if there are any gaps in that. And there are arguments that, that are made that there are not any gaps in those genealogy records, but we don't know that. But I don't think it was Melchizedek. And um, even though I'm, I'm talking to someone now and we're looking at the, the Hebrew words that are used for Melchizedek, and there's some argument that he had to be a different person than Jesus, that he couldn't be a Christophany in the Old Testament because of the words that are used there. And I'm trying to look a little closer into that before I just kind of say, no, I don't believe that because languages, original languages, Hebrew and Greek are not my thing. And so before I dismiss something that someone who knows Hebrew and Greek says, that I want to make sure to really dive in and try to figure out whether or not that's true. So right now, for me, whether or not Melchizedek was a king that lived in Jerusalem at that time or a theophany of Christ is up in the air, much to probably the dismay of my friend who is trying to convince me that the wording just can't possibly be that. But I still remain up in the air on it now. All right. So Donald Duck friend has, says, should I answer this question as Donald Duck? I could do that, but it would be really obnoxious, and I will, and I will not do it. I could, um, I could answer it as Jimmy Stewart, or I could answer it as, um, well, anyway, James Cagney or several others that I could do. Uh, but Donald friend, question: uh, Who uh, um, will we know people that have died when we get to heaven? Good question, Donald Duck. Um, a lot of people have this question, and I think the reason I was thinking why. Do we think that when we get to heaven, we're going to know less than we know right now? So why when I get to heaven, would I see my a friend of mine and not know them? I think that we will not be dumber in heaven than we are now. We'll be smarter. We'll know more things. Our brain, may, our brain will be uh, glorified. So I don't think I'm going to have the same problems with recall that I have here. So I got to think that we'll know each other. But I think the reason this is asked is because it says in, in heaven, there's no more sorrow. And then if I have a family member who has been separated from God in hell, then how can there be no more sorrow if I love them? And I, I don't know that I have a completely good answer to that. But maybe with our minds that are glorified, we'll have a better understanding with that. But that's why I think that this question is, is often asked. And um, uh, I, I, we will definitely know one another in heaven. And I think the relationship, even though we won't be married in heaven, the relationship we have with our spouse will be an ongoing relationship. Our children will be an ongoing relationship with our children. And um, if, if one of my children didn't make it into heaven, it would be heartbreaking. And I don't know how God would take away that sorrow, but I believe that God would in some way. And I can't possibly imagine that. All right. So we do have the question from Rod 
Thank you for your question, by the way, Donald Duck, a friend. Uh, Rod says, was Melchizedek a Christophany? And that's what we were just talking about that. Um, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna give it the big, I don't know. Uh, I think it's very possible because of the way that Hebrews talks about him. Uh, he just shows up out of the blue. He's the king of Salem, which would be the king of, of peace, which we know King of peace. He has bread and wine in his hands. So that's the elements, right? For the sacrifice of Christ. He's a king and a priest, like Jesus is a king and a priest. And he has no end of days and no beginning of days, according to Hebrews, which I think has to be explained if you're going to say it's not a Christophany. And I don't know that I've heard a good explanation as to what that means. So as I said, I'm having a conversation with someone who knows Hebrew right now, and um, I'm supposed to, to look a couple of things up and haven't done it yet, um, but I'm right in the middle of that. And so I'm just going to give it an I don't know, maybe leaning towards Christophany, all right? Just because why would it say no beginning of days nor end of days? God could have very easily have said, you know, we don't know who his parents were. We don't know what his lineage is. But instead said there's no end of days and no beginning of days. Just a really interesting way to word it. And unless there's a type that's trying to be preserved by wording it that way. So, you know, there, there are some answers. I just don't know. Um, we will take a look at that. So, um, yeah, so we, um, uh, Jari's talking about um, Alicia Childers here, uh, you know, um, or ask Alicia Childers uh, the same question. So um, we have this coming up Tuesday night for the women, Alyssa Childers, who wrote the book, Another Gospel, which I read. I also read uh, another book of hers called Live Your Own Truth and Other Lies, both very good, and they deal with today's culture and how they're trying to, how the culture today rejects the thoughts of the Bible and the way that the Bible teaches things is true and right, and she deals with progressive Christianity. And um, I'm really looking forward to interviewing her. So we will have an interview slash Q&A next Wednesday night at both campuses at the church. We'd love to have you come out and join us, be there. Um, and I'm going to interview her, but we are also going to take questions. We'll put a number up on the screen. You'll be able to text in your question to that number, and then you can ask Alyssa Childers um, your questions. So it'll be an interview slash Q&A um, at both campuses. All right, so um, I look forward to that. And um, yeah, you'll be able to ask her questions uh, at, that, uh, at that service, all right? I think she's gonna, she's gonna be great. I think there's so much that people need to know about, they're running into progressive Christianity. People are deconstructing their faith. They're denying the resurrection. And um, there are a lot of questions that I wanna ask her. Uh, she certainly is, she's an apologist and she's an expert in this area. I'm really looking forward to that interview. So we have a, um, Question from G J D H J D H John 16, 7. The question that arose were, can they be in the world at the same time? Does the Holy Spirit act on its own or always need to be sent with instructions? Yeah, I've had this question before, uh, JDH, in, in, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure that I've ever really gotten, I thought about this, uh, what I think is a good answer to this. So John 16, 7. Um, so let me put this up on the screen for you. So it says, 
And Jesus is talking to his disciples about leaving and sending the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you and he will come to you. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the question is, why can't the Holy Spirit come while Jesus was there? And my answer is, yes, the Holy Spirit is here. First of all, where can you go to hide from your spirit? Right, the Bible says, so God's spirit is everywhere. Secondly, the Holy Spirit descended with a voice of God speaking from heaven when Jesus was baptized. So the Holy Spirit descended upon him and Jesus is the anointed one. So it has to do not with the Holy Spirit, but the way the Holy Spirit works within the church. You and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus was the temple of the Holy Spirit when he was here. So I think that if he, and notice I said, I think, okay? So you know that there's some speculation here on my part. I think that if he is the temple of the Holy Spirit, destroy this temple and I'll build, rebuild it in three days. He was speaking of his body. That we couldn't be the temple while he was still here. He had to go send the Holy Spirit to us. Now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is an amazing thought. Angels are not the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are. Angels are more powerful than us, but we are the temple of the Holy, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And that is absolutely amazing. And so that's what I think, um, and I keep on going back to, let me go and get Andre's down from here. That's what I think uh, is going on here, uh, JDH. Uh, in John uh, 16, 7, I think Jesus is, it's the way the Holy Spirit works in the world. Now, the Bible also talks in 1st, 2nd Thessalonians about the restrainer being taken out of the world. That which restrains will soon be taken out. We believe that's the church or the Holy Spirit in the church because the Holy Spirit remains. It just operates differently, no longer through the church anymore. And the church has a great restraining effect on this earth. It's one of the reasons I think that the world hates us so much is because of the restraining factor that there is. All right. So thank you, GDH. I think that's what it means. I think it has to do with the way the Holy Spirit works within the church and worked within Jesus, not that the Holy Spirit and Jesus could not be together because I think we can make an argument that they were. All right. Um, so thank you, Keith, for finding. Um, we were our first question was, can the son of uh, if Jesus is the son of God, how can he be God? And arguments that are made, Jesus is the son of God, so he can't be God. And so we do have a teaching um, that uh, goes back to um, twenty twenty. Is it twenty twenty two? All right. Um, oh, this is another. Or is this another one that you found? The divine Messiah. So this may be another one. Yeah, um, which could be good. Uh, there's uh, some other stuff that that we have out there as well as to the deity of Jesus uh, on our um, on our webpage. Is Jesus uh, is Jesus the Son of God or is Jesus God? Is, is the small one and the divinity of Christ is the longer form teaching. All right. Um, so uh, if you are here, by the way, I hate when I'm trying to fill time and I say um. It drives me crazy. So every time you hear me say that, you know that I have failed because I try hard just to let there be silence instead of having to fill every word or every space with some kind of a, a noise or an um or e uh, uh, you know, those kind of things. Um, I hate listening back to myself on those things. All right, so we have a question 
from Cecilia, and Cecilia says, hi, Robert. Hi, hello. Um, why was the book of Enoch taken out? All right. Thanks, Cecilia. I appreciate that. Um, the book of Enoch was never taken out. It was rejected as Jewish scripture. So, um, the Old Testament was finished 400 years before the time of Christ, 400 years-ish before the time of Christ. The book of Enoch is written in the middle between the, the end of the um, Old Testament, which is Micah, right? And the beginning of the New Testament, Malachi, which is Malachi, and the end of the New, beginning of the New Testament, which is Matthew. There's a 400-year break there. <clears throat> doesn't mean that there were no Jewish writings. What it means is God was silent for those 400 years. The last thing the Old Testament says is that he was a, let me get to it real quick here. I'll look at it. I'll read it to you. The last thing it says is um, that he will turn the hearts of his fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their father, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And then Jesus comes in Matthew and according to the scriptures and becomes a curse for us by hanging on a tree to take away the curse that we were under from the law. Okay. So the book of Enoch was never in the scriptures. Neither were any of the Apocrypha. So um, people will go back and go, um, well, when was the Apocrypha added? The Apocrypha was added like 1350, 1350 years after Christ, the Apocrypha was added. So early on, the early church, very early, the 27 books of the New Testament were being mentioned together with authority. The Bible gives authority within itself, calls Paul's writing scripture, um, quotes from, from Luke. So there's just these things that are happening within the Bible that help us to understand why the canon of scripture was chosen the way it was chosen. We, first of all, had scripture. Uh, in the New Testament, it says, as the scriptures say, and it quotes the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, as the, Jew, uh, as the Jewish people have delivered it to us, is our scriptures. And then the New Testament was added, and it had a quality that was accepted very early in church history. And the idea, the, the what is it, Dan Brown idea, that there were competing gospels, and these are just the ones that won out, are, are silly if you go back and look at it. Just go back and look. The, the gospels he's talking about, the Gnostic gospels, are three and four hundred years later. We know that the Old Testament, as we have it, was completed, and this is a consensus among scholars, was completed in the in the first century. That's in the century Jesus died. The scriptures as we have them were completed. The last one to be written in 95 would have been the book of Revelation. We have a, a piece of scripture that is dated to around 125, and it's a piece of the book of John, which is the last, considered to be, the last of the gospels to be written. That doesn't mean it was dated to 125. In order for us to have a scrap of it, it had to be around before that. And so we believe that it was written when, whenever, whatever the dates are for the book of John. I haven't looked at it in a while, in a while, 75, 80, whatever it would be thought that the book of John was written. Um, but yeah, the, um, the book of Enoch has never been accepted uh, uh, traditionally or corporately by by the nation of Israel or by anyone who's Hebrew or Jewish or by the church. It's always been thought to be a book that's out there. And if you don't think that, uh, I don't know if you've ever read it, Cecilia, but you should go out and read it. And it is interesting. There is a quote in the New Testament out of the book of Enoch, but it doesn't say 
that this is scripture. It'd be like me today quoting Iron Man. And, and then someone going, well, Robert quoted Iron Man, so it must be the scriptures. Just because the Bible quotes someone doesn't make what that, that, what that quote was from scripture. Paul quoted a philosopher in Acts 17, and that, what that philosopher says doesn't become scripture. It doesn't mean it's true. He just quoted a philosopher. All right, so hopefully that's helpful, Cecilia. I appreciate that. Um, the book of Enoch is weird. If you ever try to take time to read it, um, there, there are, there is a Cliff Notes version of the Book of Enoch that's probably good enough to read. All right, I think you'll get, you'll get the gist of it. Uh, so Renee has a question. Renee said, a couple of times you said in your message, in your messages, that God will kill you. I think you said this from the Book of Job. I looked, but I couldn't find it. Can you clarify what you were saying? Thank you, Pastor Robert. Um, so I think, Renee, what you're talking about is when I say, even I will serve God today, even if he kills me tomorrow, right? And I will, I, and I have before given that quote to Job, but I actually think it's, it's somewhere else. Let me see if I can find it here really quick. Um, but I, I have attributed to Job, but I actually think it's somewhere else. And that was just my own memory failing me. Um, I will serve God today, even if he kills me tomorrow. And I just said, um, uh, let's see. All right, I'm gonna have to look for what I, um, I'm gonna have to look, uh, Renee, for where, where I had gotten that from. And it may actually just be a misquote from me. You know, does the Bible actually say, I will serve God today if he kills me tomorrow? Or what is it that Job says that is similar to that? Maybe not those exact words, but kind of carries over that sentiment. And it just, this might just be something I need to come back at our next Q&A, Renee, and say, um, yeah, this isn't said in the Bible, and um, Job never said it, to which then I will tweet out, I will live for him today if I, if, if I die for him tomorrow. If it means that I died, if I live for him today, means that I die for him tomorrow, I will live for him today. Because I think that's a great quote. <laughs> if it's not in scripture, then I'll steal it. I'll take it for myself. Because I did come up with it and then attribute it to scripture, if indeed it's not in scripture. But I do think there is something that I got that from. Just exactly where? Hmm. I am not sure. All right. So thank you for pointing that out. I like to have pointed out to me when I'm wrong. And I may very well be wrong about that. And I don't say that just in jest either, by the way. Um, I do want to know when I say something that's wrong. I don't want to continue to say or, or do something that's wrong. The Bible says if, if someone doesn't stumble in what they say, they're a perfect person. And I know I'm not perfect. And a preacher makes a living on the things that he says. And so we want to be, I want to be accurate with it. And if I say something that's wrong, I don't mind being corrected. Just don't correct every little thing that is like I called, what I, I called Melchizedek Methuselah the other night. I said, the only person who's kings and priests are Methuselah and Jesus and the church. And then someone said Methuselah. And they came up and said, you said Methuselah. Do you mean Methuselah? No. And if that's a genuine question, I appreciate that. But four or five of my friends ribbed me that they didn't know that Methuselah was a king or a priest. And they were right in ribbing against that. So it just looks like I had a special delivery here, um, which is Job 13, 15. So here's your phone back. Job. Job 13, 15. 
my wife and secretary uh, has uh, brought in Job 15:13. So let me go ahead and go there, and we will see. There, 13:15. Thank you. All right, Job 13:15, 13:15. And the thing about this is, is it kind of bums me out. I'm not going to be, and I'm not going to be able to steal it. Um, so yeah, 13:15. Um, so it's said in a little different way, but let me go ahead and put it up here, Renee. All right. So it says in Job uh, 13, 15, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. He, uh, he shall also be my salvation. So that's the thought. Though he slay me, I will trust him. Even though he kills me, I'm going to live for him. I just said it a different way. Though he slays me, I'll trust him. Even if God kills me, I will trust him. So there it is. Um, it's just too bad. I'm not going to be able to tweet that out later on as something that I thought of, but it's actual scripture, which is great because it's far, much more profound than anything that I could come up with. And I'm glad I'm right. Um, I was just misquoting it, you know, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And uh, that's the perfect way to put it because that's what the scriptures say, right? Though he slay me, so I will trust him. All right. Does that answer your question, Renee? A couple of times you said in your message that God will kill you. God will kill you. I think you said this from the book of Job. Yeah, so I'm not saying that God's going to kill us. I'm saying God would have a right to, but that even if he slays me, I'm going to serve him, which is a, a pretty powerful statement. All right. Um, so Justin has a question from Genesis 5.32. Are they triplets perhaps? Everywhere else, a time between ch child is stated. I'm not sure exactly what you're saying, but let me go ahead and just take a look at Genesis 5.32, and we will see if I can figure it out. Uh, if you are joining us and you have a question, then write the word question in front of it and uh, put add the reference. I appreciate that, Justin. And then read it a couple times. Make sure it makes clear sense so I, I don't have to guess too much because when I guess too much, I end up not answering the question. And then you just get, I have had people get frustrated, but well, he didn't answer my question, so I don't know. But if I can't understand it, um, it's hard to to do it. Um, and Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So you're asking whether or not they could be, um, they could be, uh, they could be triplets. Um, so let's just think about the way we approach Scripture, Justin. We want to be careful that we don't infer things on the text. And, and a lot of people do this. A lot of preachers do this. They're looking for something to preach. They want it to be new. They want it to be exciting. And so they end up coming up with something like that, you know, Adam and um, that's that, that Abel, Cain and Abel were twins or him, Shem and Japheth were triplets. Um, it's just not in the text. And Cain and Abel, I, I want to look at the Hebrew there and the way the Hebrew says it, but as far as I can tell, it doesn't say that they are. So you don't want to infer on the text something that is not there. Could they be? Sure. Are they? Probably not, because the text doesn't infer that. So you just want to be careful when you're looking at Scripture, because um, the, the, the theological term would be doing violence. When you infer on a text, you end up inevitably doing violence to the text. The text that what didn't mean that didn't say that didn't have anything to do with that doesn't make any point about them being twins or triplets, and so when you're handling the word of God, 
you don't want to infer something onto the text. You, there's enough about what the Bible says without saying, could it be? It reminds me of the History Channel. The History Channel is full of, could it be, right? You got the Curse of Oak Island, you've got Nostradamus effect, uh, you've got ancient aliens, and all of them have the same guy saying, could it be, could it be that Hem, Shem, and Japheth were triplets? Could it be that they were planted here by aliens? Could it be that can't, you know, so that, that's what you don't want to do to the word of God. You don't want to infer on the text and then make a point by that. Now, I'm not saying you're making a point by it. I'm just saying that you don't want to do that. You want to clearly see what it says, teach what it says. And there's so much in the word of God that I, I'm, I'm covering in our study today in Luke uh, 23, I'm covering the burial of Jesus. And there's so much said about the, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, but the burial is mentioned in the gospel. He was buried and rose again, according to the scriptures. And so then when I started pouring into the, the study, I thought, I, I think I can do one whole one on the, the burial. And I can, I could do one whole one on the burial easily. But I found out there was a lot more to it. And I could probably do three or four studies on the burial of Jesus. You could talk about the, the, the Shroud of Turin, which has a new date, by the way. They've come up with a new dating on there and some evidence, Gary Habermas talks about it, that it could indeed be a genuine um, linen cloth that was wrapped around Christ. And there, it even says that Joseph of Arimathea brought a linen cloth. Uh, you can talk about us being buried with Christ and what does that mean for us? So there's all kinds of things you can talk about, so much so that I can't get a whole, I mean, I can't cover everything in detail in my studies tonight on the burial of Christ because what it says, there's so much there without inferring on it being something else, which is um, which is always a danger to do. Um, I'll give you another example that someone talked to me about here recently. Um, it was Isaiah 61, where Jesus says, God has sent me to preach the gospel to the poor and to heal the brokenhearted. And afterwards, a, a person came up to me and said, well, I heard a pa pastor say one time that, that really what this is saying is that God, he was sent to preach the gospel to the poor in spirit and to the, 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 the brokenhearted in spirit and to the mourning in spirit. And that, that's doing violence to the text. The text doesn't say that. It says he came to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted. To, and, and it gives a list of things there. And we want to take them at face value. Could God mean that he's going to preach to the poor in spirit? Jesus talked about the poor in spirit in, in um, the Beatitudes. But you can't say that's what the text is saying. Because then you're inferring onto the text something that's not there. And this is something you want to be very, very careful that you don't end up doing. All right? So I'm going to get off my soapbox now because that is something that drives me crazy when I hear pastors taking a text and then inferring into it something that is not even there. All right. So what are you guys talking about? Are you talking about what we're talking about? You guys have such good insight um, into the questions that are being asked. Um, and we're talking about what? What are we talking about here? All right. I won't put it on the screen. I'm just I'm just wondering, what are we talking about? Uh, appreciate you guys. Love the community that we have here. And um, so, um, yeah, so Keith has the the number <clears throat> to send your questions in for Alyssa Childers. I would suggest going onto YouTube and looking at some of her videos. Also, maybe reading her book. You have 
a few days, you could read another gospel. It's fantastic. It's really, really good. Um, but um, it's there in the chat. I won't put it on the screen, but it is there in the chat if you want it. All right. Um, let's see. So um, Empress Kimberly says, Scott Richards, Scott's friend of mine, Scott, um, pastors another Calvary Chapel here in Tucson, says uh, it's because to show us Christ and that it is translated, we don't know who Melchizedek's mom and dad are, uh, but according to them, he wasn't Jesus. Yeah. And that's, you know, I mean, again, you're going to have a lot of disagreements about different things. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm an I don't know on it. Uh, he may very well be he's not Jesus. Uh, and um, perhaps he's correct. So Jari has a, okay, yeah, he drives a follow-up. Uh, don't know who Melchizedek's mom and dad are. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't want to, you know, it's like, I, I like I said, Scott's a friend. And he could have, it could have very easily have said that in Hebrews, right? It could have said, and Melchizedek, whom we don't know where he comes from. But he is definitely a type of Christ. If he isn't a Christophany, he is a type of Christ. And maybe that's why it says no, no that we don't know his genealogy. There's, he has no genealogy. It doesn't say we don't know his genealogy. It says that he has no genealogy. And um, maybe at some point here, we'll actually start off with a question, with that question, where I can go back and we can look at the text a little bit more and maybe come to a little bit more informed um, idea. I can tell you that I'm, I'm a little bit more prone, uh, like, again, Scott's a friend, but I'm a little bit more prone to believe um, kind of the traditional uh, Jewish, first century Jewish mindset. So I believe the sons of God were actually angels in, 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 um, in Genesis chapter six, God doesn't. Um, and neither does Pat Lazovich, another good friend of mine, another Calvary Chapel close by. And um, I'm not saying that I, I can't be wrong, um, but I'm just saying I'm a little more prone to be open to believe those things and wonder why would they say it in that way so it makes it look like that if it wasn't a Christophany. And we know that Christ did appear in the Old Testament. All right, so Rod um, has another question. Is the Apocrypha good history? Um, not all of it. So there are certain parts of it that are, right? Um, like any other history book that would be written. So you've got Maccabees, I think it's first or second Maccabees. You've got some other stuff that can be good. I would say that because these are writings that were around in the first century, that you can get into a good mindset from it. You can get to what they believed, what they were looking at kind of when, when somebody said something, what they meant when they said it, maybe what they would, how they would have heard it, how it would have landed on their ears when they said it. So I think there can be, there can be good things accomplished by reading the Apocrypha, but would never take them into scripture. I think that they were added at a very late date for reasons that were, um, to support certain doctrines, they were brought in at a very late date and we would not accept the Apocrypha. All right. So, um, yeah, there, um, so Keith does have the, um, this is the, the longer teaching. Um, 
that we have on the divinity of Jesus, uh, the biblical case for the deity of Jesus, God among us. Um, and I think that was done, I don't know, two or three years ago. And then we also have a shorter one that is, is Jesus God. And um, again, that was a long time ago. So you'll see, I actually still have my, my bookshelf behind me when, when, when we do that one. So I know it was one of the earlier ones um, because of that. All right, uh, let's see. I'm trying hard just to let silence be silence. You don't have to fill every second with a noise. All right, so uh, we, uh, let's see how close are we to the end here. So we're close to the end. I'm gonna bring a question in from Jari. And we usually do one question per show, but we're pretty near the end here. We've got just a few minutes left. Jari says, why can't someone be angel possessed, but demon possessed or fallen angels different from demons? Thanks. Yeah, well, that is a big, long issue. Um, there are different types of angels. Some are the cherubim and seraphim angels. Are the wheels that Ezekiel saw, the Ophanim, are they angels? Are there other spiritual beings that were created that aren't angels? Michael is the archangel. We know that he's a powerful angel. We all know he always shows up with war. There's the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece that Gabriel fought against. So it seems like there's princes, which may be the highest rank of angels, then powers, and then a spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. I'm trying to think if there's anything else there in Ephesians and what that says. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and a spiritual host of wickedness. I think those are the three rankings that we get there. And then when it talks about angels, it talks about principalities and powers. So there is um, different angels that are spoken of um, in, in different places. Um, yeah, let me just read this to you. Let me just put this up on the screen. So it says, um, put on the whole armor of God. Let's see, let's go back a little bit. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not um, wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. So this looks like three different ranks. And because Michael is called a prince and these princes that fought against Gabriel, it looks like there is some support in scripture for it. Um, and angels, it says that God created all principalities and powers, visible and invisible in the book of Colossians. So when you start cross-referencing this, you see that it lines up. But there are principalities, which seems to be the highest of the angels, as far as we know, powers, which is next down, rulers of darkness, and then the um, host of wickedness in heavenly places. Now, Dr. Michael Heiser will say, that there are other spiritual beings that are part of the heavenly council that help God rule the heavens, like he wanted man to rule the earth. And I don't, I don't know about the whole heavenly council thing there. I, I, you see times where God's definitely talking with other spiritual beings, assuming angels. Um, and so this question, you know, um, are, are fallen angels different from demons? Thanks. Um, 
is one that is brought in by this whole thing with uh, who angels are as well. And are there other spiritual beings than angels? Some believe that demons are the spirits of the Nephilim who died during the flood because they, they are disembodied down when they want bodies because they weren't human. And so they didn't go to heaven or hell, but they're just wandering around now and that they're going to be sent to the abyss because Jesus said to them that he's going to lock them away. And some of them were locked away. Yeah. And, but again, there's really no scriptural evidence for that. Uh, there are, when you, when you start looking into it and I would have a tendency to think, well, I, I would like to do a complete study on all the references of demons, fallen spirits, you know, all, all of those to be able to really come to a point where I can answer, where I can answer that question for you. And I don't think anybody can be angel possessed because I think it's a demonic thing to take over the will of a person. All right. So I know, and we never read in the Bible about anybody being angel possessed instead of demon possessed. But thank you very much, Jari, for your question. I really do appreciate it. And I appreciate you. All right. So we are at the end of our Q&A for today. I really appreciate you guys. Again, I appreciate the community that we have here. And even you guys staying on task with the questions that are answered. I'm going to ask you guys to do that a little bit better um, because you guys have some information that you can bring to it. So you, you may be able to add something that I'm not thinking about. And by, by, by staying involved and listening to what the questions are and maybe even responding about them, I think that that makes this program even better. I think that TruthQuest podcast will be even better um, by what you guys have to add. And if I see something that I think adds to the question that we've already answered or answered as I'm making my way through here, I'll bring it in and we'll talk a little bit more about what you say. All right. So um, I appreciate you guys. Thank you. Stay close to Jesus. Um, love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, walk with him. Be a follower of Jesus. When we are born again, we are transformed, and we actually have a different relationship with sin, a different relationship with the demonic realm once we are born again. That's just a, such an incredible thought when you think about it, that, that God transformed me so that I now am dealt, I, I mean, I now have a different tie with sin. It's not as severe as it used to be. I'm not as in bond, much bondage to sin as I used to be. I know that we still sin, but hey, walk in that truth and in that light. Stay close to Jesus, and um, we will see you guys, um, Lord willing, this Wednesday night for another Truth Quest podcast Q&A. All right, love you. Stay close to Jesus. God bless you guys. Uh, we'll see you uh, maybe later on tonight at our service where we'll be talking about the burial of Jesus. And we're going to see that we were buried with Christ and what that means. It's very powerful. All right. God bless you guys. Love you. See you later on.